one likes discipline. I mean, parents don't enjoy disciplining their kids. Teachers don't enjoy disciplining their class. Well, you won't enjoy the next 28 minutes, but it'll be good for you. In fact, this will probably hurt us more than it hurts you. The subject is church discipline with Philip Jensen. Philip, good day. <laughs> My mother was once spanking me and she said, this hurts me more than you. Then so. you thought, I don't believe it. <laughs> no, I didn't. So I said, well, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> I tell you, she must have been in terrible agony. <laughs> You're a terrible kid. I'm a bit stupid. <laughs> Church discipline is an yeah. expression we've all come across. And we've got an idea there is something called church discipline. But the idea that there is such a thing is almost odd because churches are these friendly fellowships. How do... How do we understand the expression? What does it cover? What does it well, mean? Well, I don't know about the development of the word. You, I don't know whether you do or not uh, off the top of your head, but discipline today is, is a negative word. Right. It's, it means punishment, chastisement, rebuking, all that kind of thing. But you think about it, discipline is the same set of words as discipling. The word discipline has been detached from discipling, as it almost totally, I think many people don't realise it's the same thing. Uh, and it's only taken the negative side. Whereas discipling, again, is, is caught up with a discipline. Yes. It's teaching. Yeah, as the way universities have disciplines. Yes, yes, so, yes. which is, is teaching. And that's what discipling is. It's teaching someone how to go. Well, in teaching someone how to go, you sometimes have to say, no, no, you're going the wrong way. No, no, stop doing that. That's not the way to go. We, we do think about that. When we, we use the expression church discipline, we think of a, a pastor saying, now, you shouldn't be doing this. What you're doing is wrong. And that's got to be part of it, surely. That's part of it. But we go even further, I think. When we use the word discipline, we think kicking the person out of church, excommunicating them, uh, uh, preventing them from having privileges of membership within the church or something like that. Right. Right. I mean, you disciplined me once. You won't remember this. No, of course I'll tell you the story. I was doing a lot of itinerant evangelism, so I was away a lot from my regular service. And you said, Kel, if you're going to be an itinerant evangelist, you've got to have a home church and be there every week. Yeah. And I said, yes. That's but as he walked away, I thought, how dare he tell me that? <laughs> and then I went home and got over it. And I thought, right. Well, I, I made sure I had a home church and I yeah. was there every week. That, that's that, that's that the kind of process, isn't it? That's right. Okay. That is discipling. That is discipline. That is teaching. Um, and it can be with, you've got to stop doing. Yes. It can be with, I'm glad you're doing the right thing. Right. Is it... Because it can, can involve that negative component, is it hard to do? Is it difficult in, in the current culture, the current society we live in, for pastors and elders to do that sort of thing? Yes. Uh, I don't know whether it's easier in other cultures or other times because this is the one we live in. Um, you can't do it effectively without a good relationship. But as soon as you do it, you put your relationship at risk. And so those who uh, are very dependent on... Uh, good relationships with their congregations will be very fearful of ever doing it. Right. If, if I find my meaning, my security in the fact I'm being liked, if I need to be liked, I'll never discipline anybody. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with being liked. I, I, we all nice. quite enjoy being liked. I, yes. I, I guess so. It's never happened to me. You know, but, uh, <laughs> we, we like being liked and it's quite right to be liked. But if you need to be liked, you yes. really have a problem because every time you say to somebody, every time you seek to correct anybody in anything, you're always risking relationship. Let me read you a quote from uh, an American church leader, Albert Moller, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Baptist guy. He says, the decline of church discipline is perhaps the most visible failure of the contemporary church. He says, 
no longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God or each other. And that's a big statement to make. Do you think he's, he's, he's heading in the right direction there? It is, but I might get you in a moment or two to come back and read it again because there's a whole set of things he's saying there I agree with and some I think I disagree with right. or a different historical background. Al Mohler's a great one. Um, uh, I think he's, he's terrific. He's a marvellous man. Uh, he's doing a great, great work in the, uh, in the college in uh, Louisville where he is. Uh, writes a blog regularly, and he's always worth listening to. Always read, very readable blog. Very readable, both in terms of its communication skills, but in terms of the content of what's said. And so I don't want to part company with Al Mohler particularly, and I think he's worth listening to on most things. Uh, next thing is he says um, that he is a Southern Baptist. Which is a particular church culture. Well, it goes back to being a Baptist. Yep. That is... At the time of the Reformation, there was a movement from national churches to confessional churches. And uh, to be a member of the Church of England, you fundamentally just have to be an Englishman. And the head of the Church of England uh, was the, the king or queen of the day. Now, what is meant by head of the church's uh, issue and so on, but many a person said, this isn't right, the head of the church is Christ. And just being an Englishman doesn't make you a member of the church. Um, you need to actually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance was often signified by uh, baptism as an adult with full immersion. Not necessarily. You could be a Congregationalist. But you are, you are a member of a church by deliberate choice and conviction rather than by your parents' choice and conviction to which you joined up. Now, I've slightly caricatured both the Church of England and the Baptist to get the point across. But the Baptist Church, for example, and tradition, is not really about baptism, it's about membership. Therefore, disciplining is a critical part of their existence. Because membership is something you've chosen and you've been accepted as a member. And you maintain and are responsible to. Right. And so the disciplining of the church comes out of that tradition. Whereas uh, inclusiveness comes out of the tradition of national churches. Calling upon people to be believers and calling upon people to take responsibility for themselves in that regard. Now, strangely, you then wind up with individualism and corporate uh, communities. So in his quote there he talks about today we've become more autonomous individualisms. Well strangely that's where the Baptists head toward it because each person must of themselves come to their own belief and the family you came from was not critical. Whereas the national church, well I'm part of a whole nation who believes in God and so uh, there's a corporate sense of belief. He's right in that the 21st century, individualism is rampant and people have very little sense of corporation. But it's a strange twisting of history, not, not an evil twisting, it's a strange quirk of history, that's what I was saying, that it's the Baptists who are now concerned about the corporate nature <laughs> and the Anglicans are really concerned, or the church, national churches, I mean the Church of Scotland's the same thing, uh, 
they're concerned about uh, the community. <laughs> and uh, they too have become uh, individualists though. So he's right, there's, there's not enough concern today for our corporate relationships. Well, let's follow those two parts, the mm -hmm. National Church and the Confessing mm -hmm. Church. If we look at church discipline, do they go in different directions? Does the National Church fall into one particular era yep. and the Confessional Church yep. into another? Uh, again, just to try and highlight the differences that are here and simplify and caricature, but highlight it. Um, the, the kind of National Church concept unravels into uh, lax attitudes towards all things in the church and the life of the Christian, which then goes into heresy and immorality. It doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter how you live, you're an Englishman, you're a member of the Church of England. And so inclusiveness is all inclusiveness. And it doesn't matter. Now, so course, we simply have to include everyone because our principle is inclusiveness. Yes. Right. Now, of course, that's not really true of the Church of England because you're supposed to confess the 39 articles, you're supposed to confess the, the, the creeds, you're supposed to... But in effect, that's what happens. Right. And so ultimately, Episcopalianism uh, and uh, the Anglican Communion is just falling apart because there's no agreement about anything. Really. Well, there's no agreement on what counts as being Christian. No. Anyone who says, I belong to this, well, you're a Christian, no matter what you believe or how you behave. That's right. And well, at that point, that, the whole of Christianity just kind of gets washed out of the system. Right. So if that's their error, what happens on in the, the other hand? Yeah, yeah, the other side. Ah, well, because membership matters and you uh, are a member by conviction and by changed life, we start watching your life and your convictions all the time and we start watching each other. And so it then ravels into legalism as you make the rules and regulations of the things you need. And of course, both sides of the coin uh, choose certain things as being important or unimportant. And so you must fulfill these rules and regulations, not all rules and regulations, these ones in particular, like no smoking, no dancing, no wearing makeup, no, I mean, you make up sets yes, of rules yes, that yeah. people can observe and you become more and more legalist and push all the way out into a cult where the sets of rules that you have to keep are essential or you'll be kicked out. And so um, condemnatory uh, disciplining sets in and power sets in. So the elders are always looking to find fault and kick you out rather than looking to embrace the ungodly with the message of salvation. And the, the set of rules sometimes strike us, particularly once when we look back on them as being odd. I went to a Baptist youth group and I had a, a Baptist deacon come to me once saying he's quite worried about Bob. He was sure he'd seen Bob walk into a cinema. Yeah. Uh, now, he didn't want to kick him out, but he thought that as a youth leader I should sit down and have a exactly. word with Bob. Oh, yes. I, um, I met a lovely girl um, from, uh, from a, this kind of church uh, at university in a Bible study group once, uh, never been to the, the cinema in her life. But watch television at home. <laughs> yes. Now, you then have to start making differentiations. Oh, well, cinema, they turn all the lights out and you're surrounded by them. There is a difference in actually watching a film in a cinema as opposed to watching the same film in television at home. But really... <laughs> yes, yeah. it's like Spurgeon not going to the theatre but reading Shakespeare at home for pleasure. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so they're the two directions you like to go in. Legalism yes. on the one hand or total laxity yeah. on the other. So let's, let's try to work out a more biblical way to go. But of course, they're the, that's where you go down to. Right. 
both groups as evangelical Bible-believing are more similar in the middle. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Because if you understand grace properly, you will, as a uh, inclusivist church, uh, preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness. And as a membership church, you'll preach the gospel of uh, forgiveness and repentance. Right. So grace in the end is critical. Is critical. We'll come back to grace yep. in a moment. Take me to the early church, because they would have had problems when there was persecution, because some yes. people gave way under persecution. That's it. Then you had to work out what you do with them. Yeah. Uh, how did they handle That was it? the big problem. Uh, not so much the New Testament time, I don't think it's discussed there, but in subsequent centuries through till uh, the fourth century or so, there were waves of persecution. Persecution didn't happen all the time, but you just got an emperor like Diocletian, persecution broke out for a decade, and then after the decade it stopped. Well, what do you do with the people who renounced Christ under persecution? They then come back and say, well, actually, I do believe in Jesus. And so you say, well, I'll accept him back into fellowship, or won't I? Now, if you were one of the ones who suffered the loss of your family, were tortured, your body was wrecked, and yet you held firm, how easily do you find it to accept back the person who not only recanted, but dobbed in who the other Christians were? Yes, indeed. Do you forgive them? Well, the death of Jesus covers all sins, but he also says, if you renounce me, I will renounce you. And so some churches took a lax attitude and allowed people to repent and come back in. Others took the strict attitude and said, no, once you've renounced Christ, that's the unforgivable sin. And so you can't come back in. And I don't think they ever resolved what to do. So is there, is, does the Bible help us on this? When we go back further from the early church to, to the apostolic period, is there any evidence of, of church discipline problems there and how they tackled them? Yes, there is, and there's quite a lot. One of our problems is there is quite a lot in different contexts. And so this is something that some Christians disagree about because they're concentrating on this passage or that passage rather than trying to pull them all together. Um, you've got the teachings of Jesus that your brother sins against you. This is not sins, but sins against you. Yes. Then you're supposed to speak to him personally. And if he won't listen to you, take along a witness to speak. And if he won't listen to either of you, then you take it to the church. Then you treat him as a tax collector, as a sinner. Well, how do you treat a tax collector and a sinner? In one sense, you separate from them. In another sense, you preach the gospel for their salvation. <laughs> yes. I mean, what Jesus did with tax collectors and sinners was he... He, he went, spent time with them. Spent time with them Ate and for their salvation. Them. Yes. And so people immediately jump to, therefore you have nothing more to do with them. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, Jesus also speaks about the, the one sheep that's gone astray and you leave the 90 in line to go look for the one that has gone astray. And so there's a, a salvation uh, concern in Jesus that is important for us to emulate. And there's those kinds of teachings about concern for the those who have failed. On the other hand, you've got, say, passages like um, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is dealing with a man who's living with his father's wife um, in a sexual relationship that is scandalous even to the pagans. And the Corinthian church is putting up with it, just ignoring it. And Paul is adamant that um, this man must be judged and hand it over to Satan. He doesn't tell us how to hand someone over to Satan, but hand it over to Satan. He says, we are to judge not the outsiders, but the insiders. For he says, 
I've written to you already that you must not uh, associate with immoral men who claim to be in Christ. Not at all meaning the immoral of this world, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. But, and so we have a sense of concern for the uh, congregation, that uh, we have a, a concern for right living there, which is different for our concern for right living outside the congregation. And the particular person is to be handed over to Satan. But there's a couple more things about that passage. One, handed over to Satan so that they might be saved, so that they'll repent and come back. Mm. So there's not, I'm handing over, I'm excommunicating for judgmental purposes, pure and simple. So it's not uh, you, you go away, it's you need to understand how, how wrong your behaviour is. Yes, right. And uh, if, I, if I just accept you, you don't understand wrong, you won't repent. If I reject you at this point, I'm rejecting you so that you will repent and come back. And so, and then he goes on to talk about the, the leaven, is the next little passage, the little leaven affects the rest. And so he talks about the effect of sin in a church. And it's important that you remove the leaven, but not for the purity of the church. And so part of the Al Moller argument there, I'm not sure about the purity of the church. I don't think you get to a pure church until heaven. I think we'll always be lived in a mixed church. Now, because we're always moved in a mixed church doesn't mean I tolerate it. Uh, Jesus said, the poor you'll always have with you. Well, that doesn't mean, therefore, I never give any poor man any help. Uh, but I must never think I'm going to solve the poverty of the world. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. So the Puritans wanted to purify the church, and in a sense, that was an impossible goal. It's an impossible goal. Right. Uh, and set you up for, for a failure. But if you leave sin in a church, open, public, unconfessed sinfulness of a particular kind, gross social sinfulness, then you will indeed uh, poison the well. You will make it hard for the other Christians. You will fail to teach Christians properly. You will cause sin to escalate. But just removing it is not going to purify the right. church particularly. You know, we're full of sins. There are just some sins which have social consequences uh, and teaching consequences that need to be dealt with. But that it was going to be my next question, and you sort of half answered it. What happens if this kind of church discipline doesn't happen? How, how does it damage the church internally and in the eyes of the world? Yeah. You, you take, uh, is it the church of Laodicea in Revelation? Which one's now? I'm not sure it is. It's Luke Thyatira in Revelation, the end of chapter 2. How they've tolerated Jezebel in her false teaching and her sexual immoralities. And that causes damage to others. Or in uh, one of the letters to Timothy, where he talks about Hymenaeus and uh, Philetus, uh, who have denied the resurrection, and their teaching is like gangrene, poisoning right. others. So there's damage internally. And so there's damage internally to the church, theologically and morally, to allow this to continue. It must be stopped because of its contaminating effect rather than because of its purifying effect. Right. By stopping it, it, it just stops the contamination. Um, and so the Corinthian passage, I think, is an important passage to show, as the book of Revelation in that letter to the seven churches is an important passage to show. No, we don't tolerate everything. We mustn't tolerate everything. We must stand up for righteousness within the people of God, uh, more so than within the society as a whole. 
Let me bring you back to grace, which you raised earlier. How then does, does the local church deal with um, that kind the, the church discipline issues? What does the pastor do? What do the elders do in practice? How do you deal with it? I think one of the most beautiful passages is Galatians 6 and the first paragraph of Galatians 6, where it says, if, if anyone is caught in a sin, then let those who are spiritual go to him to restore him. That is, the knee-jerk reaction of grace discipline is restoration. Right. It's not punishment. It's not retribution. Uh, our first knee-jerk reaction is, how can I restore? Yes. And the way of restoring, and you need to be a spiritual person to think that and to treat the person rightly. The unspiritual legalist will seek to punish. The spiritual grace person will seek to restore. And you seek to restore. And he says, but uh, in a spirit of gentleness. So again, it's not uh, I sitting on my high horse condemning. I've actually do it with gentleness. In fact, he goes on to say, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. If I can't understand that there but for the grace of God go I, then I really am not a suitable person to do this work. I think I've got double negatives there, haven't I? In order to restore someone else in gentleness, I must understand that I too could do exactly what they've done. Yes. Given us the right temptation, the right pressure, the right circumstances. The right... See, I've never been tempted to steal food. But if I was in Somalia at the moment, travelling across the desert with a little baby, I'd be tempted to be stealing food. <laughs> Every chance I would be stealing food. I don't want to be like that, but I've never been put in that position of temptation. And so I can look at them and say, oh, what a thief, what a dreadful thing, with a fat belly and a comfortable life here in <laughs> Sydney. But I've got to say, no, I am capable of doing whatever you have done. And therefore I look to myself and understand forgiveness is the only basis upon which I am standing in Christ and forgiveness is the only basis upon which you can stand in Christ. It actually says you don't take your standing in the other person. It's a funny passage because at one point it says bear one another's burdens and then by the end of the paragraph it says bear your own burdens. Because one of the things the legalist disciplinarian does is that they get joy out of other people's failures. Schadenfreude, the Germans had the word for it. Thank you. Yes. Uh, uh, by putting you down, I feel better about myself. Yes, yes. I see you sin and I say, well, at least I've never done that. Yes. Now, as long that's what legalists are always like. They always mark on the curve and therefore they like hanging around with degenerates because they look good. If that is your frame of mind, you cannot restore anybody because you're not a man of grace. The inclusivists are not people of grace because they don't know forgiveness and mercy. They think everything's all right. No need for grace. For no them. need. The legalist doesn't understand grace because he thinks he's right because he's kept the laws and the other people haven't. He's so good. He doesn't have grace. He's been good. It's the spiritual person who needs to do this work, who says right. wrong is wrong. And you know, I could have done that too, but God has been merciful to me. You too need to... And so it's a beautiful passage in working out what to do uh, in seeking to restore people. However, sometimes what they've done is not restorable. Sometimes what they've done 
has consequences. Has consequences of a meeting, yes. And that's why we don't work on every sin. Personally, I've got to work on every sin in my life. But there are sins that are gnat sins and there are sins that are camel sins. And Jesus says, you know, the Pharisees' failure to differentiate between those two is a real problem. Both extremes fail. Right? So the, the laxists swallow camels. <laughs> and, and the, and the, the legalists <laughs> choke on gnats. Yes. Right. You know, they both fail. Yep. Um, well, uh, yes, what makes a camel a camel is uh, one, that it is an absolutely abhorrent thing to God, or two, that it has dreadful consequences that really are. Now, what do I mean? You commit adultery and uh, uh, procreate a child outside of marriage, outside of your marriage. Well, you may find repentance and forgiveness from God. You may even find forgiveness from your spouse and from the other person's spouse. But it's still a child. Yes. Still there. <clears throat> that mistake goes on to eternity. Yes. Um, and you can't say, okay, well, we're forgiven, so we just wipe all the cl boards clean now. We go back as if we weren't. No, we can't just go back as if it wasn't. Because there's, there's something else is now involved. So there's now, you have to carry that burden Christianly. Yes, that's right. And so there's a thing called recovery ethics. It's, it's not what I should do, it's what I should do now that I've made the mess that I've made. <laughs> right. right. And so you can't say to people who have never failed like this, oh, this is the way to, do, to go about, you know, have multiple marriages, it's perfectly all right, because look, here's someone who's been married and we're trying to help them. No, you've got to say, this was a terrible mistake. I've made a real mess, and this is the best I can do with the mess that I've made up. And there's a child that has and to be loved and cared and supported it's for. It's not the child's fault. Yep. Uh, they need to be, they need love. They need love more than ever. Mm. Um, and so we've got to work at helping them. Now that's one case. There are many others. You, know, you get drunk, you drive into a crowd of people, you kill people. Well, there's all these families who are grieving for years and you can't replace the people that you've done that to. And moments of madness and stupidity uh, lives on with you and with others for years. But grace, is, grace looks like the key to grace work out how you do these things. Because you certainly can recover in relationship with God. And on the basis of that, you can start seeking to recover in relationship with other people and to do uh, whatever you can to make whatever amends are possible. Right. Well, we began by talking about what church discipline means and maybe what we need to do is to stop using that expression and just see it as part of pastoral care. Yes, I think it's a better term. Yep. But we've got to do it rather than just a pastoral care means I'm going to be just warm and fuzzy and friendly yep. to everybody. Because that's not That's caring. not going to help. Okay. So there you are. You've had your 28 minutes. You've been disciplined. Just don't do it again, that's all. Uh, Philip, thank you for chatting to us on Church Discipline. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And thank you for your company. We'll see you again next time on The Chat.